Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast is brought to you by Stock Market Hats. Stock market hats claim to be stylish and funny. Frankly, I wasn't that amused by some of them, but maybe you will be. And it's not just hats either, but they have t-shirts, sports bras, socks, and even pet ID tags. It's worth checking out, and right now you can take advantage of a 10% discount on all merchandise. Go to stockmarkethats.com and enter the code CONTRARIAN before you check out and take advantage of this special offer. There is a referral link I will put in the show notes as well. Stock Market Hats, claiming to be stylish and funny. Alan Bond of Jensen Investment Management, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. Been looking forward to this recording because this is a kind of un- knowable time here in global financial markets. We have a bunch of uncertainty going on, starting with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we also have interest rates, uncertainty, and volatility, inflation. There is a bunch of stuff here that is kind of vexing investors and vexing markets. They seem to be okay with it as we record this a day after a big rally on Wall Street. But just curious to start off, if you can give us, obviously there's no such thing as complete certainty, but just an idea of where you see markets now and risk. Yeah, well, thanks for uh, having me on the podcast. Um, thanks for coming on. This is, this is uh, something I've been looking forward to as well. So, you know, to answer your question, and I, I, I won't go back too far, but I think it helps to go back really a couple of years to kind of frame up what's happened in the market and why, because I think it, kind of speaks to where we're at today. Uh, and I think it kind of helped help frame up some of the questions you talked about in terms of interest rates and, and then the, the crisis in, in Ukraine. Um, you know, and, and it's, we'll talk more about this, but you know, at Jensen, we're long-term investors. And it's kind of a nebulous term. But the way we, we, we kind of think about being long-term investors is we want to think about investing through the cycle. So we kind of think about the cycle as one peak in the market to the next peak in the market. And so 
for this conversation, we think it's really interesting to think about the bottom of the cycle. So that would have been about two years ago, almost exactly two years ago, it was March of 2020. The market bottomed out in a very severe and sharp bear market uh, associated with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And as the uncertainty around that began to resolve, the market, we, we've seen a sharp rally off of that bottom. And really, we think that rally was fueled in many ways by extraordinarily easy monetary policy and extraordinary amount of fiscal stimulus. And the result, if we, and if we include 2019 in this period, it's really remarkable. The market's up cumulatively, and I'm looking at the S&P 500 index, almost 70% in those three years, 2019, 2020, 2021. And it's amazing to think that that occurred in the face of a, of a global pandemic, unlike, you know, it's kind of a generational thing. None of us have seen something like this before. But we really do think it was the market looking forward, looking through the pandemic disruption. We, we, we saw a very quick and, and largely successful in many ways healthcare response to it in terms of vaccines and so forth. Uh, and then again, we've seen some really, really generous policies. What we've seen more recently is that the combination of the stimulus and then some hiccups in the global supply chain as we start getting back going has resulted in inflation. And so that kind of brings us to where we think we're kind of an inflection point right now in terms of these large market drivers. The reason is that monetary policy, believe it or not, is still very easy. Uh, you know, Fed, Fed, Fed rates are near zero. The Fed is still doing quantitative easing purchases, but they've, high, they, they've indicated they're going to start raising rates sooner rather than later. So we expect that to go more, more hawkish. And then fiscal policy is kind of becoming neutral. So those drivers are gone. And now we have to grapple with higher inflation. And like you mentioned, a rise in interest rates. And then the, the, the disruption in you know, geopolitically with Russia and Ukraine kind of adds fuel to that fire from a uh, kind of an economic or financial implication standpoint. The result is the market's down this year. I think what um, 7% or so as, as we record this, we're giving back some of those gains. Um, so to frame up where we're at today, I think there's, there's two issues that we're, we're grappling with, but they are, they're related. One is the, the resolution of this issue in, in Ukraine. And, you know, goes without saying, but we're going to say it anyway, the, you know, our, our, our heart goes out to the people in, in Ukraine. This is, a, this is a, a tragedy and it's a crisis. And it's first and foremost that at a human level. From an economic standpoint or from a financial standpoint, in and of itself, or in and of themselves, um, Ukraine and Russia, they're about 2% of global GDP combined. So we don't expect a huge amount of disruption from that standpoint. Where we see the potential for disruption is more second and third order. This, the, the, those obvious second order impact is on cost and on this inflationary issue that we we're already dealing with in the sense that uh, Russia is one of the key energy providers to Europe uh, and globally. And Ukraine is a key commodities provider. And so if, if we see disruption in Russia's energy and Ukraine's commodities, that can add to that inflation. And I think it add to, you know, maybe a slowdown in Europe. The larger, the, the, maybe the next order impact would be, does this geopolitical instability there, right now it feels like it's isolated. Does it become a contagion? Does, do we see more activity? And then, then, and then that would be more of a broader disruption from a GDP standpoint. So that's how we're thinking about the market kind of the last couple of years and then how Ukraine and Russia and then this inflationary question or the, the, the persistence of this inflation sort of fit in. 
Interesting. Yeah, that's a really good way of framing it. Couldn't have said it any better myself. And so what do, where do you think though cyclically we are here? Like if, whether it's quadrants or what stage of the economic cycle are we at? Is there still juice in the business cycle, at least in the US? How much and for how long? Yeah, it's, you know, that's a great question. This is obviously kind of a weird business cycle uh, in the sense that, you know, like I mentioned, we were, we were still in an economic expansion uh, two years ago. And then the, the pandemic hit and it just sent everything spiraling. And so what we've seen really, the, the, the economy is just in this weird spot where we're dealing with disruption, still dealing with disruption um, from the pandemic, but also reacting to you know, a tremendous amount of stimulus. And so it's created kind of a, a weird business cycle, maybe a bit faster because you know, if you think about, think, just let's, let's just look at it relative to the last cycle. So the market bottomed out in, in early 2009 the Fed went really, really easy. We saw some fiscal stimulus. We saw, you know, at that time, kind of unprecedented Fed policy with, with zero bound interest rates and quantitative easing. And that, that stayed in place for about five years. So the Fed essentially went neutral on QE uh, in late 2014 and then, and then started raising rates in 2015, right? So that was about, let's just say five years of very, very easy Fed policy. Right now, we're about two years into that. And we're already talking about interest rate increases. And so the reason I bring that up is, is you, you, you know, you think about when the Fed starts to tighten or starts to talk about tighten, that can be kind of thought of as mid-cycle. And, and I, I think that's probably the right way to think about where we're at right now, but it's happened very, very quickly as a result of some of these other factors that we're at. And so, yeah, so what we needed, what, you know, we're, we're going to see is the, the Fed and, and other global financial uh, leaders, their ability to navigate and try to create some sort of a soft landing and that it's, it's, it appears like it would be a lot trickier given that uh, the, the, the level, the magnitude, and the, what seems to be persistence in terms of inflation. Mm. I was going to say, has the Fed or any central bank ever been able to engineer a soft landing? It seems they always talk about it, you know, the last couple of cycles that I've been around for at least, and it never seems to happen. I, I, yeah, I, I think there may have been soft landings in the past, but probably before my career in investment started. I mean, you, you could argue that they were on their way to engineering a soft landing the last time around. Uh, before mm-hmm. the pandemic hit, because mm-hmm. the, econo- the, the economy was still growing, they'd, right. ris- they'd, they'd raised rates, um, created kind of a stability in terms of rates, and and then you know the unexpected sure. happened, and we had a pandemic that, that sent us into a recession. So, mm-hmm. um, so who knows that that could have been it? But it's a it's a great question, and I, I, I mean, I believe that 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 task is more difficult right now, given again, given that we've got a lot of inflation, but we also still have a lot of uncertainty with the pandemic and now this, this geopolitical issue mm. as well. How concerned are you about inflation? Uh, you just mentioned it, you know, and, and now, especially with, uh, you know, with Russia becoming a pariah state, there's a big supply of oil, gas, and other commodities that are just not going to be available, presumably. And it's not entirely sure where they can, people can go to, to, to replace it. And so that would leave prices going only one way, which is upward. Can the and, and which producers will then pass on, on to consumers? Can consumers stomach this? We're talking about five dollar gas, probably more in the U.S. And for how long do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I can tell you. Um, I'll start with kind of how we think about it as investors, and then and then maybe talk more about broad broad economics terms. You know, as investors, we manage high quality investment strategies. And so we're looking for businesses that we think are quality businesses first and foremost. And so these would be businesses with competitive advantages and free cash flow generation and strong balance sheets and so on and so forth. 
And one of the ways this manifests itself in a period of inflation is pricing power. And so as investors, we're looking for businesses that have demonstrated pricing power or have business models that lend itself to pricing power, because we think that's how the businesses can manage with cost inflation. And they're all, they're all seeing it. And, 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 and so that we believe the winners from a business standpoint will be ones that have business models that allow them to, 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 to pass costs on. Hmm. Um, the other side of the equation is, is, is difficult. I don't, you know, it's, we're not, we're not economists. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're investment managers. Um, I would just say that it, the, what we, one thing we are watching though is wage inflation. So we're seeing mm-hmm. cost inflation, uh, let's say commodity costs or energy costs, what have you, that is leading to wage inflation. And, and the one thing to keep in mind is the, U, the, the employment certainly in the U S has come roaring back. And so we're already, we're, we're kind of at a tight point from a employment standpoint, which as costs come through, that's putting pressure on wages. And that's really that cycle that we're trying to trying to monitor and understand is how long does that 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 uh, inflation cycle persist, you know, and at what point will it, it slow down a little bit? So a lot of what you mentioned seems to imply staples, consumer staples, maybe utility type of things that have the pricing power where consumers aren't left with any other other choice, but to get those products anyway. Is that is that a fair statement, you think? Yeah, so we're certainly seeing some of the consumer consumer staples companies. So the two we own on our, our flagship strategy are, are Pepsi and Procter and Gamble, and both of those companies have been successful with raising prices, and 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 that's that certainly in line with our expectations. Those are both companies that have have uh, dominant market share positions in the, in the in the spaces that they compete and strong brand names and so forth that resonate with consumers and that gives them the, them the ability to raise prices. I think, you know, we'll talk um, a little later about one stock idea, but, but another stock that we own, I, I, again, it, a lot of it comes down to business model. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something that maybe is, is a, like a nuance, right? So one of the stocks we own is MasterCard. MasterCard, in many ways, their revenue model is a function of global spending, right? So they, they earn a tiny fraction of each time their card is used in a transaction. That's their revenue model. And so if we have inflation, inflation means, you know, just broadly speaking, more money is being spent nominally. That means they take a bigger nominal piece out of that. And it's a natural inflation hedge that sits inside their business model. So this is the, I, I think, I think this is the kind of the, one of the things that's really critical. We always talk about know what you own, right? Know, and, and we, for us, that's really, really important. We own 29 stocks. We're not and this is again in our flagship flagship strategy. We, you know, this is very much a high conviction strategy. So to us, it's really important to understand the nuances of these businesses so that we're able to adjust and adapt as circumstances change. And MasterCard is a good example of that. Another one, very different business, but also a very nuanced ability from a pricing standpoint. We own TJX companies. Um, TJX is an off-price retailer. And so TJX, they own TJ Maxx, they own Marshalls, they own Home Goods, and their business model is essentially based on taking advantage of kind of the perpetual inefficiencies in uh, retail supply chains, apparel and other types of retail supply chains where there, there there's overproduction, um, there's missed orders, there's things that happen, and this is just because there's such a lag, you know, about an 18 month lag for a traditional retailer between order and delivery, things happen, and this this is it's just it's just the nature of the business. And so what, what TGX tries to do is they, they buy late in the cycle and they buy, they buy at a price where they can sell at a price where they're going to have a big discount relative to traditional re- retailers. And what's important for them is just to maintain that gap. So whether or not they, if they pay $10 for something 
uh, and they can sell it for 20, well, that's great. But if they have to pay $15 or something, then they can just sell for 25, assuming that the, the traditional retailers are doing the same thing, which the economics would suggest they normally will. So again, another company with, I would say, kind of a very nuanced ability to pass price where they're still actually, there's a very good argument they're providing value. Hmm. I'll say they are. I mean, I don't like to shop. In fact, I hate it. But a couple of times a year, I will go into a Marshalls or a TJ Maxx. And I was just there maybe a month or so ago, Marshalls. And so that's why this is fresh. And they have this discount shelf at the center of the store. And you go there and there's stuff that is available literally for pennies on the dollar, like staples and other things. It's it's really amazing. So as a value shopper, it's a, it's a pretty good deal, um, especially with prices going up everywhere else. Yeah, the, the, the thing with TJX that's interesting is, is they're very much still a brick and mortar retailer. Uh, mm-hmm. They get about 1% of their sales um, from an e-commerce standpoint. And the reason and the reason I bring this up, it's related to your point, is they're trying to create this treasure hunt experience. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to get, they're trying to flow merchandise in and out of their stores very quickly. So if you look at their inventory terms, they're much higher than, than an average retailer is. And they're trying to, they're trying to, to use their buying and their merchandising to get merchandise in there that they can buy and they can sell quickly. And, if, and the other thing, they're very aggressive. If things are not selling, they will quickly mark them down because the, the way that business model works is to maintain freshness. And what's, what's interesting about that is we've seen this big change in retail where e-commerce has really disrupted a lot of retailers. And TGX is the one that we haven't really seen that yet. In fact, if you look at their numbers and they've, they've been distorted because they've been mandated to close stores, um, certainly in the U.S. kind of back in 2020, but even last year in Europe and Australia, they're global. It's hard to, it's hard to get that like for like those same store sales, but they're, but they're reporting it in a way you can't see it. And there's pretty good, pretty good evidence that that model is still resonating with consumers. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as a completely novice consumer myself, I mean, I'm a, I'm a good exhibit, as good an exhibit as anybody, I guess. Very cool. Alan Bond, um, I want to take a short break and, and give our sponsors a, a second to be heard, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we are going to provide, you're going to have some stock picks um, that you are uh, bullish on right now with the understanding, of course, that this is not investment advice. And there's some other things that I want to ask you in this very fascinating conversation. If you are a premium subscriber, do not touch the dial. You will not get the break. To become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. This episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast brought to you by Stock Market Hats. Stock Market Hats claim to be stylish and funny. Some of them say things like, end the Fed, don't tax the rich, I heart the Fed, Dr. Parikh Patel, not back office. Okay, that one is actually kind of funny. Market cap cap. That's also pretty funny. 
and some other ones. You may know their Twitter, at StockMarketHats, but check it out, StockMarketHats.com, and enter Contrarian at checkout to take advantage of a 10% discount. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, here with Alan Bond, PM and MD at Jensen Investment Management in Portland, Oregon. Alan, this is the, the segment of the show where we ask our guests a little bit more about themselves personally and professionally and their background, how they started in investing and how they got to, to their current station in life. So curious to hear from you, uh, your story so far, uh, not the entire life story that would be here for a little while, but just you know the, the more relevant parts. Yeah. Um, okay. So I've, I've been with Jensen now for um, just hit my um, 15 year anniversary last month. So congratulations. Um, this has definitely been the longest uh, part of my career. And I've been uh, an analyst and, and portfolio manager here the whole time. Uh, well, started out as an analyst, but I'm still an analyst and, and now I'm a portfolio manager as well on, on two of our strategies. Um, prior to Jensen, I was actually working on the fixed income side of things. So I was a corporate and high yield bond analyst prior to that, mm. which it sounds like kind of a leap, although the work I was doing is, is that is a, certainly as a high yield bond analyst is, is just about as deep as you go as an mm -hmm. equity analyst trying to understand businesses. The questions you're trying to answer are a little different. You know, in, in, in equities, we're, we're trying to answer, does this company have a sustainable competitive advantage? Does this company have opportunities to grow and create value? Those are the two primary questions we're trying to answer. High yield, it's like, you're, is this a good business? Are they going to be able to pay their interest and pay me back at the end. Those are, but, but you're the, the, the type of analysis that goes into that is pretty similar. I started the business in 1998 and, um, and it kind of what sparked my interest, I suppose, you know, I was an undergrad, I took some finance classes and it just sort of clicked. And I was like, I think I kind of like this. And so I was lucky enough to be able to find a way to make a career out of it. Um, I finished the CFA in 2002. So I've kind of done that track as well. And, um, I just, you know, from a personal level, I think it's a, it's a phenomenal career. It's, it's something where the market kind of keeps you honest. You get the chance to learn something new just about every day and work, work with a lot of smart, dedicated people. So I think it's a, it's a really neat place to be. Mm, very cool. Nice. And so, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about these stocks. And you mentioned MasterCard at the outset. And how is, is that different from Visa? I've always, I've always wondered this. Or are they fundamentally um, the same? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And the reality is not much. Mm -hmm. They are very similar businesses. They both were spun out of essentially bank consortiums. Um, mm -hmm. So they were, that's how they start. That's, that was how they originated. Um, let's just, I'll just try to give you. So the basic big difference, the big difference is Visa is larger. Um, if you look at market share, um, basically in terms of number of transactions or whatever, Visa's 60%-ish. MasterCard's more 30-ish. So it's that's the biggest difference. Their revenue model is identical. And, and, it, and it, there's some, there is a, a, a caveat here that may be worth kind of sort of interesting, I think. Um, so, so you think about Visa and, and MasterCard, they operate what are called open loop networks. What that means is they facilitate the secure and efficient interchange between banks when we make a transaction. So when we think about like, let's say you go to the grocery store and use your credit card. Um, the credit, the grocery store has to be able to take your credit card. So they have a bank that they work with that allows them to accept your credit card. Um, that's often called an acquiring bank. Your credit card has been issued by a bank. Um, for me, it's Bank of America. So Bank of America is my issuing bank. So now I've got me, the grocery store, their bank, and my bank. MasterCard and Visa both just sit in between the banks and they facilitate, again, the, the, the communication language and channel that allows for secure and efficient transfer of, of assets between those banks. 
And that's all they do. And so again, they take, you know, you think you people probably heard about interchange. Interchange is essentially the if 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 I spend a hundred dollars uh at the grocery store, uh the merchant only takes about maybe uh, I don't know, 99, something of that. And then the, that fraction, that difference is split among those different parties. MasterCard and Visa get a sliver of it. Most of that money goes to the issuing bank. So whoever your credit card's with gets the vast majority of that. Um, and so again, when I talked about MasterCard, their revenue model is very much a function of just global spending. And the big, the big growth story with them and Visa has been that electronic transactions are increasingly displacing cash transactions around the world. So there's this massive secular growth driver that's benefiting both of those businesses because of their their kind of entrenched position, you know, brand name, distribution network, uh, acceptance network, so on and so forth. We think these are tremendous competitive advantages shared by both businesses. Where this is different, if you think about an American Express, it's a good example. They are called a closed loop network. So American Express does all of that stuff that I described. They are the issuer of the card. They are the acquiring bank that represents the merchant. They are, and, and then they, they, again, they're the, the card issuer and then there's you. So they're really, they're really there. And then they take the interchange in the middle. And so it's a different business model where for them, it opens them up more to like credit risk, you know, mm-hmm. with consumers and their, their credit, whereas MasterCard and Visa really don't take credit risk um, in that regard. And so it's a different business model. They get to capture more of that spread, but they also, it's not as scalable and it's also not as, um, it also is not a pure play as much as Fast Visa and MasterCard are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. I mean, it's an amazing business model. This this idea that whoever had it to create this little tiny middleman that just—I mean—it's literally just a sticker on a card, right? They don't lend any money. To your point, they um, don't. It, it, I'll, I will tell you this about Mastercard. Um, we one of the big things that we try to do as, as investors is we try to you know we 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 pride ourselves on due diligence, and we will often get um, as part of our due diligence we try to meet with senior management and. Um, with MasterCard, we, we were able to do that and we have that meeting. And the one thing, I was the lead analyst on it. So this could be a business where it would be very easy to become complacent because like you said, they are, they are doing one small sliver of a thing. It's very lucrative and there's a natural growth driver. And, but you have to think about it as a technology business, meaning that there are competitive threats. And if you're not willing to stay a step or two ahead of competition, you can get displaced pretty quickly. Now, MasterCard and Visa have a huge leg up on competition because they generate so much cash for investment. They can they can go out and buy new technologies. They can develop technologies. They've put a lot of effort into security and a lot of effort into analytics so that they collect a lot of data with these transactions and then they can package, create analytics and sell that data. Um, that's been a really, really um, great kind of diversifier and growth driver for MasterCard. But what, but what struck us when we, we talked with MasterCard and their leadership was that this was a company that was very much focused on the next thing. It wasn't about, hey, we're going to sit back and kind of clip the coupon on this phenomenal business. We're going to take, we're, we, we are going to do that, but we're going to reinvest. And so what they've done from a reinvestment standpoint is they've tried to open up what they call new payment rails. So think of credit card payments as one rail. There's debit card would be a different rail. Business to business would be a different rail. And, 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 and they're, they're investing in that. Again, they've invested in, in kind of data and analytics and security. And this is really what it, it makes us feel comfortable that MasterCard's not only a great business for today, but they're taking steps to make it a good business for the future as well. Yeah. To that, are there any concerns about, I mean, you mentioned displacement. I mean, there's been a couple that immediately come to mind, you know, buy now, pay later, and then the decentralized finance. I mean, to the extent that you take that seriously, you know, if you do. 
And I know that they, there have been some acquisitions of BNPL in that space, but how much of a concern is that as far as yeah, being a displacement? Yeah, so um, buy now, pay later is something that MasterCard is, is doing themselves. Yeah. Piloting it right now, so this is what I. It, it really just falls back to where is their competitive advantage? Uh, their competitive advantage is their ability to seamlessly and securely trans you facilitate transactions between banks. And a lot of the kind of the fintech that we've seen, maybe they'd like to do that, but they they pretty quickly realize that it's much more efficient for them just to partner with Mastercard or, yeah. and or partner with Visa, and then allow them to try to make maybe the the front end easier or better, either for the merchant, either for the consumer. And so, and the MasterCard has been very open about partnering and they've, they've, they've done everything they can to make it, make them a beneficial and easy partner. So they, mm. they maintain their moat around their, their part of the financial networks or their, their part of the transactions, but they're allowing innovation to happen around that as long as they're their core business stays intact. And then again, they've also acquired a lot of these types of businesses. They are, they are piloting their own buy now, pay later program. Mm-hmm. So this is a, you know, I, I, again, I think a business that's, that's trying to maintain a, a very strong legacy business, but also be forward looking. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. Cool. All right. So now you have three of these three ideas that you want to talk about uh, here. Let's take them in an alphabetical order. The first one is uh, it's just three letters starting with an A. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, with ADP, um, I think formerly known as automatic data processing. Mm-hmm. So ADP is the leading payroll processor in North America for large businesses. So they process payroll, they have human resources services, they have a large and growing outsourcing business. And it is a business that is characterized by very high customer switching costs and very high scale advantages, and then therefore a very high customer retention rate. So this is what we think the crux of the competitive advantage for ADP is, is that they can process payroll more efficiently and and more easily than any one individual company can do it. And so once they've won business, it's very unlikely that business leaves from them or with a competitor. And so their customer retention rate is over 90% consistently. Hmm. Um, it's also you know, a, a revenue model that um, we think is, is, is really a powerful revenue model. I kind of talked about the nuance and understanding this. And this is I, one of the things that we really focus on more trying to analyze businesses. How do they make money? ADP's revenue model is largely kind of a fee per transaction. So every time they cut a check, every time they make they they do something, they recur they they create revenue. Um, that creates revenue recurrence in the sense that it's you know as long as they're writing these checks and doing these things, they're going to generate revenue. It also makes it relatively easy to model or easy. It's predictable in the sense that you can kind of okay, well we understand what's going on with employment growth. We know that what their percentage of of market shares and so forth gives us a pretty good proxy for understanding how ADP's business should perform. It also creates a lot of natural operating leverage. So this means that sales will tend to rise faster than expenses over time, which which means improved profitability. That is the core. And then, and then from a growth standpoint, they've done. There's two things going on. Number one is we've already talked about the employment markets come roaring back, and that's a that's a benefit for ADP. 
The other thing they've done is they've, they've tweaked their, their modeling, made more of a kind of a software as a service or cloud enabled model that's allowed them to go down market and, and work with smaller and medium sized businesses, which is a, there's a lot more opportunity in terms of numbers of businesses there. So that's kind of our, our investment thesis on um, ADP kind of long term. The one thing that's interesting about ADP right now is there's kind of this part of the business that I think sometimes gets overlooked that's kind of a natural inflation hedge. So as part of their business, they receive cash from their clients before they have to pay the cash out, right? When they're, they're cutting paychecks. And last quarter, they had about 32 billion in these funds that are held for clients. And they are able to invest this, these, these assets uh, in very short-term safe investments. Last year, they earned $422 million in interest income from those cash balances. And what's great about this is it's almost pure profit. There is not a lot of overhead associated with this. It's just kind of a byproduct of business. It drops right to the bottom line. So it's good for profitability. Also very good from an inflation hedge standpoint. You know, they're investing most of these instrument, this, this money in very short-term safe fixed income instruments. So as interest rates go up alongside inflation, which typically happens, they can earn better interest rates on this, these funds. The second thing is these funds are largely a function of wages being paid. So as we have wage inflation, again, the nominal amount of these funds held um, goes up, which means more opportunity to earn interest and drops right to the bottom line. So we think there's, there's a really good long-term story and kind of a, a neat short-term story with ADP right now. And I think what I would say is this is a stock that's underperformed a little bit to start the year. Um, we think there's a couple of things going on. Number one is we've seen a broad pullback in tech stocks and ADP is in the tech. It's even, it's, it's not a traditional technology company, but it's in that sector. Um, so they've kind of got caught in the downdraft there. Uh, and then their guidance for the year was a, a, a little bit lackluster given what we've seen in employment growth. Although we suspect there's probably some conservatism built in there. So short term, some concerns about tech stocks, uh, maybe some, you know, questions about what, what, where, where, where guidance comes in for the year. Long term, we think a very, very powerful business model uh, with good growth drivers and um, this kind of short-term inflation hedge built into it. Hmm. But isn't a lot of the uh, business cyclical? And if there's a recession, there will be at some point, then employment will decline. And wouldn't that hurt them? Yeah, there's there's no doubt about it. And I think that's um, that's something that you, 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 you want to think about um, sort of... We're, trying to think of the right way. We're, we're kind of trying to, you recognize that as, as an issue and a risk. What, 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 where we would come down on that is um, understand the business model and what the drivers of the business model are, the potential for cyclicality. That's something that as we develop our financial models and our forward-looking projections, those assumptions get built in there. And then the, you know, the one thing we've talked about a little bit from our investment strategy, we're focused on high quality businesses and we're very much focused on them for the long term. You know, on average, we hold stocks seven to eight years. Mm. So we want to own high quality businesses that we think are going to create business value and that we can kind of participate alongside of that as shareholders. The other component that's really critical for us is we want to make sure we pay a fair price. And that's where I think we're, what, what, how we try to answer the question that you just asked about cyclicality is, well, let's make sure we, we understand that and that is reflected in our financial projections. Let's make sure we pay a fair price. ADP, again, we own stocks seven to eight years on average, and we've owned ADP on and off over the 15 years that I've been at Jensen, but we actually have been a little bit more active with it, where we've where there's been moments where we think the stock's gotten ahead of itself pretty meaningfully. 
and we've either paired it back or sold out of it. Um, and then tried to tried to be um, you know opportunistic about when we got back in. We, we we put it back in the portfolio in March of 2020 for the most recently, and that was during that kind of that concern about you know the the, the onset of the pandemic and how that might impact employment. And so we thought, okay, this is a high quality business. We think over time employment will come back, and we were able to get in. We think at a good price. Is there balance sheet flexibility, or do, do they have a lot of debt that needs to be serviced? I suspect they have a very strong balance sheet. Um, I don't re- remember exactly what it is off the top of my head, but, if, but this is one of the one of the stronger ones that we we follow. Yeah. So it's yeah. Well, it's, that, that'll a come in flexibility there as well. Yeah, that'll come in handy when there's a recession for sure. Very cool. All right, now uh, next, Broadridge Financial. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. So so Broadridge may not be as well known, although there's a lot of similarities between Broadridge and, and ADP in terms of the way the business model works, and, and it also a very strong business. So. Broadridge is the leading provider of proxy services in North America. So I think we all kind of know what proxies are, but I think the best as investors, I should say, we, we know what they are. But, but the way I think they're best thought of is kind of regulated communications that have to occur between companies and investors. And Broadridge's key service is basically providing the link between issuers. So that would be companies, mutual funds, ETFs, and investors. And their ability to identify those investors and then distribute the proxies to investors. And the reason that's critical is it's kind of a, a, a labyrinth the, 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 it, the, between the issuer and the ultimate investor where um, the investor may have their, their uh, investments held at like a, a broker, like a Charles Schwab. And so then, and then, and then so the, the records of their employment of, of that holding are actually just, oh, it's, it's owned at Schwab. And then you have to go back and look, okay, well, it's actually this investor that's on Schwab, but there's, there's, there's a lot of different kind of moving parts between those things. And Broadridge has just basically developed the infrastructure to, to very efficiently create that link. And that's really their key service offering. Um, very much like ADP, it's something where once a company outsources proxy services to Broadridge, it's very unlikely they're going to take it back. Um, Broadridge does it much more efficiently than in, in, in easily than the average company is going to do it. They have about 80% market share in the North American proxy business. So very strong business there. Their client retention is well above 95%. Mm-hmm. So again, this is a sticky, they're, they're the entrenched player in a business that's very sticky. We think this is a, a really powerful competitive advantage, network effects, scale, so on and so forth. And, and, and that's the way we think about competitive advantage. The other thing, and this is similar to ADP, is again, understand the revenue model, understand how the business makes money. And in this case, it's a very stable revenue model. They essentially earn revenue on a per communication basis. So that would be a paper-based communication. That could be an electronic communication. Whatever they communicate, they earn a fee. And that means that their revenue is going to be much more a function of the overall ownership of stocks and mutual funds, ETFs, and other financial instruments than it is about the level of capital markets. So we, we looked at this historically, and we have, we've seen it more recently. As capital markets fluctuate, Broadridge's revenue doesn't fluctuate alongside with that in a long ways. Their revenue is much more a function of overall ownership. And what we've seen in the last couple of years is this kind of quote unquote democratization of investing, which has led to more holdings of investment instruments and therefore more proxy deliveries. And this has been a really good growth driver for Broadridge. And so we think about Broadridge more as a, as a very good business, um, solid, consistent revenue model, strong competitive advantages. And then they've invested that, again, into analytics, kind of like what I talked about with MasterCard. They collect a lot of data um, when they're doing these proxies about where, who the investors are and how much they own. 
They can package this in the analytics and sell it to financial advisors that may, may want to prospect. Um, they've also got a very strong business um, kind of separately outside of the proxy business uh, in, in processing transactions for kind of mid-sized capital markets firms. So it's, 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 there's a diversification benefit to it too. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, we think a strong business. Also like ADP, not as pronounced, but they have a business where they hold cash for clients. And this is, it's called, it's a business called Matrix Financial Solutions. And they provide trust and custodial services to financial institutions. Um, they, at the last quarter, they said they had about 1.8 billion in assets under management. Again, they can generate this, invest interest income, drops right to the bottom of the line, just like I talked about with ADP. And it's, some, it's kind of an inflation hedge that, that sits there underneath the service for what we think is a very strong business. And again, if you look at kind of where we at in the market today, short term, Broadway shares have also pulled back a little to start the year, also classified as a technology stocks. So we think there's been some pressure there. Uh, they also, it, it just noted some, some a, a bit more margin pressure than they were expecting due to wage inflation. So we kind of talked about that before. So this is one place where it manifests. Um, and then they, they're digesting a recent acquisition. But so, so we, we recognize the short term, but I think it's more important. We think it's more important to focus on the long term, which is a very strong business with, with good long-term growth drivers and also kind of a natural inflation hedge. Interesting. Yeah, I just looked. The stock is down 19% year to date. So in these two months and a couple of days. Uh, so it's still up a bit on a year ago, but it looks like it might be a good, pretty good buying opportunity here. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, we, you know, we're, we, our view is it's kind of gotten dragged down with some of the other finance or the other technology uh, companies. And then it, it didn't do well on earnings. So when they reported oh, earnings last month, um, there was some disappointment with, with guidance. Although they didn't take their earnings down, they just took their margin target down a little bit. And they said, well, okay. we'll, we'll take that other ways. Nice, but, yeah. I, you know, again, th- this is one of those things as investors, as long term investors, um, we think it's really critical. Beware of the short term, you know, and, and we yeah. have to, you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, we're long term, let's ignore the short term. But I think, the short term can provide opportunities and can provide these disconnects that we can take advantage of as kind of a, a this kind of a patience arbitrage, if you will. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. By the way, this company, I don't know if it's this company, but ones like it are, I wonder how responsible they are for maintaining print productions um, and making sure that print productions don't go away. Because I don't know about you, but even though I've told them a million times, I want paperless, they send me in the mail. It seems every year, all these proxy disclosures and other things. Yeah. That, that, there's a that, that there's a really ongoing big ongoing dialogue about that. Um, Broadridge has said so they um, in that business again they're paid on a per communication basis, but then they they charge a distribution fee if it's paper based, right? So um, so that's just to cover the cost of distribution. Mm-hmm. But there's no profit in that, right? So what they've said is, look, if the if we can get this mix shift to electronic, which they expect and they're trying to enable on a nominal basis, our revenues will be under pressure because we will lose that distribution fee. However, on a profitability basis, we more than make up for that because we were making money on that anyway. So maybe it just means profit margins go up. So they're, I wouldn't say they're, um, they're not indifferent to it. They're, they're, they're advocates of making um, communications electronic. The big issue with that is the regular, there's actually a regulatory pushback a little bit because one of the things regulator, regulators want is they want investors to be, uh, I can't think of a better word, invested in the companies that they own, meaning they understand what's going on from that, that um, governance standpoint. And so there's this push and pull between, yes, we want efficient communication, which means electronic communication. We also want investors to be aware of governance and we want them because proxy voting, I think maybe is it 20%, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, only about 20% of investors actually vote their proxy. So the regulators want that number to go higher and they're concerned that if, if 
it's too electronic or too summarized, then, then maybe that, that um, engagement goes down. Yeah, fair enough, though. Uh, that has never kept me from throwing it out or recycling it right away when I receive it. But I yeah. probably should. I should. But, you know, you know what? It's a fair point. I absolutely should be aware of what, these things. And, you know, I don't. And, and like 20 percent of people vote proxy. So, yeah, like you said. All right. Lastly, here, another stock. This is one that certainly everybody has heard of uh, in the news uh, often. Obviously, it was in the news last year around the vaccine has had a bit of a hard time since reaching the highs there late last year on the vaccine. And this is Pfizer. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So this one, I, I, I threw this in at the last minute because okay. I, there's a lot of interest in Pfizer. Mm. Uh, we wrote a, a piece for our own like internal, you know, our, our, the stuff that we'll send out externally in it, but it was, it's when the vaccine got first approved and it was still our most read piece of last year. So we know there's a lot of interest in Pfizer. So I'll try to keep this short, but I think what, what's interesting about Pfizer right now is kind of, again, there's a short-term story and a long-term story. Um, so Pfizer, well-known company, one of the largest biopharmaceutical companies in the world. What we think is important, and we've owned Pfizer since 2018, and really the crux for our investment thesis is they have a very diversified um, drug portfolio. And that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's unique because a lot of even the big pharmaceuticals, they may have one or two drugs that account for most of their revenue. Um, this is the way the business works. Pfizer has some big drugs, but maybe instead of being 30% of revenue, they're closer to 10, right? So it's a bit more diverse, but they have a leading breast cancer drug in Ibrance. They have a leading um, vaccine for um, pneumonia in Prevnar. Uh, and they have a leading and growing um, uh, drug that it's like a blood thinner. So it's used for people when they have um, irregular heartbeats or uh, to prevent blood clots after like a, an orthopedic procedure. Um, so these are really good, strong growing drug franchises right now. And it's, and it's diverse. And then they have a lot more beyond that. Uh, same thing with their pipeline, uh, very diverse pipeline. And they've done a really good job under new leadership of, of giving us really good data about the pipeline and so allowing us to analyze it and kind of peek under the hood a bit more than maybe we had in the past. So that's kind of been our investment thesis with Pfizer. Obviously, in the short term, they've had phenomenal success with COVID. And, um, you know, to put it in context, they're going to generate as much revenue from COVID. Actually, no, actually, take that back. They're going to generate almost as much cash flow this year as they did revenue two years ago. And a lot of that's because of um, the success they have with COVID. So they have the leading, by far leading COVID vaccine in the US. Um, and then the other thing is still not getting talked about a lot, although the president brought it up in the State of the Union, is their COVID antiviral. And what's interesting about that, the COVID vaccine they developed with a German company called BioNTech, the antiviral, they developed it internally. And it's basically, the way it works is it's a protease inhibitor, which is basically a, uh, an approach that the um, HIV treatment is based on. It's basically... Uh, prevents the virus from replicating as well. Um, and Pfizer didn't really have a established HIV program. So it kind of, it, it just kind of came out of internal work and then maybe, maybe they had a drug on the shelf somewhere and they said, oh, let's see if it works. And it did, but it's, it's a really neat drug because it attacks the virus in a way that should be more resistant to mutations, being that it could be part of the solution that gets us over the pandemic phase and into, we can deal with this, this virus phase. Um, and so those two drugs have just been phenomenal. And then the big question we're asking ourselves as investors right now is what, what's the magnitude of these drugs? And then probably more importantly is what's the, the longevity? How long do we need COVID vaccines and how long is COVID antivirals going um, to work out? And so that's kind of where the uncertainty is. If you try to look through that, and I think this is what I wanted to talk about um, in the short term, let's just back out all of the COVID-related revenues as best we can. Stocks trading at about 17, 18 times earnings, which is kind of average, maybe a little bit above average for peer group stocks um, in that space. 
And that's what were the markets were trying to grapple with. You mentioned the stock did really well in the fourth quarter. And I think that was a lot of optimism about that, that antiviral drug. And it's now we're kind of coming back and, okay, well, what's run rate? What's, you know, where, where do we go from here? And, and there's still a lot of unanswered questions there um, and uncertainty. No one likes uncertainty. So that could be you know, part of the pullback in addition to profit taking. It, it's a phenomenal stock last year. Um, here's the, that's the short term. The long term is this. Pfizer is generating a, a ton of cash right now. I mentioned they're going to generate, we expect them to generate as much cash this year as they generated revenue two years ago. And that's because of the success with their COVID programs. And what they are doing with the cash, and they've been very explicit about this, is they're focused on kind of the later part of this decade. We know they're going to lose exclusivity on some of these large drugs I talked about. They have an existing pipeline focused on that. They're going to use this cash to invest more in that lot. I would, would expect to see a lot more acquisitions. They just announced an acquisition of a company called Arena Pharmaceuticals late last year. So they paid $6.7 billion for that. And they have about $30 billion of cash on the balance sheet. They're going to get about $4 billion from, um, they own part of GlaxoSmithKline's mm. um, consumer products, JV. That's going to get spun out. They're expecting to get about $4 billion from that. And they're going to generate about $40 billion in cash this year. Add all that together, they could do about 10 of these types of deals they did. And the, the arena deal is, is they've got a very promising autoimmune drug where there's, there's kind of a proven, hey, we can, we can treat this, but there's still a lot of unmet need. So it's a very promising space. And there, we expect them to continue to look for more of these types of deals to backfill the drug pipeline. What gives us confidence is A, that cash flow gives them the ability to do that. And with a newer management team, they've really demonstrated the ability to have real acumen about where medicine is going. Hmm. And so we think this is a really good opportunity, that long-term opportunity there to, to, to get in and, and own a company where there's a lot of cash being generated and a lot of opportunities to invest mm. that cash. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you talk about somebody that's been, uh, you know, ahead of a, a lot of, maybe not ahead of, but they've managed to meet a lot of these challenges, um, you know, for decades now and managed to reinvent themselves several times, uh, maybe not reinvent themselves, but just, you know, get new pipelines of drugs uh, many times here. And, and it would certainly be something that would be tough to bet against. And especially now this too is down 19% this year. Um, and it's, you know, it also gives you, it pays you a 3% coupon, 3.3% dividend. Yeah. The current prices, like, you know, that, that's, yeah. Yeah. If you're so, yeah. You, know, you get paid to be, you get a little bit paid to be patient with this one. And, 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 and again, we, we're trying to identify stocks that have sold off a little bit this year, kind of that short-term long-term piece. And mm-hmm. yeah, the short-term piece is exactly what I just said. There's uncertainty about the longevity of those drugs. And, um, and then I probably a fair amount of profit taking. Um, based on the, the success that the, the Pfizer had, that the stock had yeah. in the fourth quarter. Sense. So we think we're kind of this lull. And as some of those questions start to get answered and their ability to, to identify other other good targets for future uh, drug pipeline, um, we, we were that's something we're going to monitor and, 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 and make sure that we're um, you know, staying on top of because that's really the kind of that, that key to that long-term story. Hmm. Is this the kind of company where they make an acquisition and the market actually rewards it because most of the time, the typical MA playbook is that the acquirer stock sinks, but if it's a growth company, or I guess maybe something like this, it, it, it goes the other way because, you know, the market gets more excited by the prospects for future growth. So, you know, so, so you're right. Um, so, so it's a mix. It's it, the answer to that, at least in my experience is yes and no um, with Pfizer given that they're spending internally generated cash, 
the the calculus is going to be how you know what price are they paying for these these things and the tricky part with pharmaceutical companies is oftentimes they are buying companies with no revenue yeah so you're you're basically you're basically having to make an assumption about what future revenue could be so you're looking you know but like i said this this company they just bought they have a very promising uh, autoimmune drug and so we kind of know there's a lot of growth in that space. It's an area of a lot of innovation and, and there's opportunity, there's a lot of opportunity there. So we can kind of put some sort of a probability on the fact that, okay, this is successful. It's, it's going to be able to be marketed. And if all that happens, you know, any price you pay is probably going to be pretty good because of the future success you could have there, but it's binary because if, if something fails, then now, so that it's really hard. It's my point is it's really hard. You almost have to, with pharmaceutical companies, you have to, try to understand what they're trying to pursue from a disease area standpoint. And then, you know, there's a little bit of a leap of faith that they're, that, 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 that they are going to be able to be successful with these drugs. And um, to us, again, it would come back down to, we'd much rather see Pfizer do 10 of these types of deals and maybe be successful on seven of them. than try to do one big deal, put all your eggs in one basket. That would be much yeah. riskier in that regard, because we really won't know the success of this deal for probably several years to come. Yeah. Very interesting. Alan Bond, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. Maybe in closing, you could tell listeners how they can find out more about you and about the your company. And I'll put this in the show notes too, so people have the links. Yeah. So Jensen Investment Management, um, we, uh, we're a boutique firm based outside of uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, we manage about $13 billion in total assets across three equity strategies. I think the one thing to note with Jensen is we are an independent firm. Uh, we've been independent state since day one. We strive to remain independent forever. And we have successfully transitioned ownership from, from kind of the first, second, third, and we're already in the fourth generation of ownership. So we, we think that makes us somewhat unique as a boutique firm as we've demonstrated um, independence. I don't think you're active on social media at all. There's a big Twitter community in the investment world, but yeah. Yeah, we're we we we're, we're active on LinkedIn. Okay, um, and so you can find us there. Mm-hmm. Not so much on Twitter yet. Fair yeah. enough. Okay. Yeah, very cool. But you're doing podcasts. That's definitely one step in the right direction. And very thrilled to be, uh, be able to take advantage of that and have you come on and share your wisdom here with us. So with that, we thank you all for listening. Thank you again to Alan for coming on, and we look forward to speaking to you all again next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.